Moncrief on News Talk. In larger venues in Ireland and around the world, the performer can be musical, but just as easily be a stand-up comic. Comic comedy has never been bigger. Jesse David Fox is an American comedy critic and the author of Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture. Afternoon, Jesse. Ah, thank you for having me. Uh, Now, your book starts in the 1990s. What do you think happened now? Obviously, comedy's been around forever, but did something happen in the 1990s that made it explode the way it has? Yeah, so part of the reason is that uh, in the the States, at least, there was a a thing that's called the comedy the comedy boom of the 1980s, where a lot of comedy clubs opened around the country, um, like somewhere in like the 400 or so. And then by 1991, 1992, that number dropped to maybe like 100, if not less. And that time period is considered the sort of bust. Um, and when I look back at it, I thought of it as essentially like a rebuilding uh, of a lot of... Uh, certain sort of the relationship between the comedian and the audience. And that relationship sort of grew and grew over the next 30 years. And the other thing was a lot of the big comedy stars of the eighties in the nineties, they got their TV shows and for young people who were not going out to the clubs, their parents were the people out to the clubs having access to these comedians like Jerry Seinfeld, like Roseanne, um, that that also um, exposed a younger generation to comedians in a, in a really big way. Also, uh, the channel Comedy Central started in the 90s, which allowed there to just sort of be comedy on all the time. And if you're inclined, you're like, well, I guess I can watch that, which is creates a different type of consumer than in the past where to be a comedy fan, you really had to seek it out. Yeah. And, and I suppose that had a knock on effect in terms of live performances. It wasn't. You had, you know, uh, com- uh, big name comics playing large venues rather than you're going to see half a dozen people in one particular club. Yeah, yeah. That was really, really right. When you're starting to see once again, uh, it's, you know, comedians will start playing theaters, right? It, it, it's, it took a while. Like in the 90s, you'd have Chris Rock when he boomed was also a big deal. Like he would play theaters and Jerry Seinfeld was playing theaters and a, a couple others. But then as the you know, one decade turns to two decades, then you're seeing so many more either playing theaters or uh, rock venues, broadly defined. And that and that alone is a big difference, which is saying like, the, just the idea that you're going to see a comedian on purpose, that you're not just going to a show, who cares who it is, mm. they better do the type of comedy I like. And instead of being like, I'm going to see Patton Oswalt because he's my favorite comedian. That creates a different context for for a comedian to operate in and allows them to create more specific to themselves uh, comedy. Yeah. Now, that's also interesting because I suppose that in turn had a knock on effect on comedy itself. Yeah. That, 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 you know, it certainly wasn't a string of jokes. It was a narrative there to string together. Yeah. Or, and, you know, or even a light narrative or themes or people could start, people were paying attention, right? Like... There, there's so much comedy, especially in the '80s, was about getting attention and keeping attention. So everything had to be fast. Everything had to be really straightforward. Um, you don't want to get into complicated subjects and maybe lose the audience. And with the grace of an audience that cares about you, you can go into lots of different territories. Um, 
be it personal. And then, and then as again, if you get, when you get the little bit of being like, oh, maybe we could be more personal on stage or around the same time period, you know, the alternative comedy, the alternative comedy movement really was, was taking shape here. And they're like, well, maybe we could trust the audience to be much more personal on stage. And that's also a different relationship. And, and to me, it's made a much more richer, a much more rich comedy experience that has inf- influenced all comedians that you see now. Mm. That, that, because for many of them as well, you could kind of argue it's, well, it's still comedy, but it's something else as well because so much of it is personal and so much of it is uh, telling, oftentimes telling a story about themselves. That can be quite harrowing stuff as well, weaved in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially recently, especially in the last five, ten years, it, this has been taken to such an extent that we're offering comedians a lot of leeway to do things that 35 years ago, people would be like, they're not comedy at all. Hell, there are people right now saying it's not comedy, but there's enough of an audience to sustain people really pushing the boundaries to do things where um, they're talking about really complicated subjects or not being funny for long stretches of time. Mm. You know, like the most famous example would, would be like Hannah Gatsby's Nanette, but like yeah. you're seeing it throughout all comedians, even comedians that are knocking would knock uh, their special you know, there, 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 there's little space, you know, there's, there's no person was doing nonstop punchlines. There's always been a little bit of room for a setup. So now maybe make the setup a little bit longer and tell us a little something about yourself. Yes. Though I, I wonder though, for, for comics, you tend to do that very personal material. Uh, is it, could it be, is there a danger of diminishing returns? Cause you know, I haven't had a trauma this year, so therefore I have nothing to talk about next year. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's, um, uh, I was interviewing Mike Birbiglia and Mike Birbiglia doesn't necessarily only do about, he does these big one person shows and they're built around usually large life events. And so he has a show about, um, he has a sleepwalking disorder. He has a show about that. He has a show about uh, essentially getting married or agree or accepting the idea of marriage. There's a story about a kid. He has a show about death. And it, it is sort of like, Oh, that's the entirety of life. Like, what do I do a show around if I don't have a big moment? And he realizes, like, ultimately, at least, and this is this is specific, at least to the States, uh, because all co- comedians, even a person doing big shows, big, like, narrative shows here, tend to start one joke at a time, opposed to starting show at a time and working backwards. Um, you know, he'll find it. You know, like, I think a lot of comedians are like, it doesn't have to be, we're not going to force it. We're just going to be like, start talking about what I'm talking about and we'll see if themes come together and maybe there is a show there. Mm. Do, do, do uh, comics still do, because it seemed almost a rite of passage that you kind of got into your 30s and suddenly you're, do, you're doing material about your kids. There's yeah. so many people have done it. It's like the 21st century version of what about that airline food kind of gags. Yeah, it's, it's I, I, in the book I talk about how... Um, you know, people, I, I, I often talk about it, I compare it to political comedy, right? So people complain about political comedy. They're like, well, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't change society or something like that. And I go, you know, I think maybe your standards of how much it, it could change is, is too great. Like, ultimately, like, people are wanting relief from the main thing that stresses them. And so if you go to a show and see people under the age of 30, all they talk about is dating. You know, as I am now <laughs> near my 40s, they just talk about dating so much. And I was like, is this what my life was like? And I cared so much because I was dating and dating is so weird and hard. And I I assumed as comedy grew more diverse, 
in terms of gender expression and sexualities that would change as they were like breaking up um, the heteronormative binary or whatever. But no, like their comedians talk about dating, but now dating talks about being in a polycule and they're the hinge and, and it's still the same stuff, right? And then once you get over 30, you're, you know, you have jokes about marriage and then, you know, in, in where I live in Brooklyn, New York, fewer people have kids, but um, so then you, but everyone, if you don't have kids, has to do at least some material about not having kids. But yes, I agree. Like once you have kids, you kind of want someone to be like, isn't this the weirdest thing you've ever done in your entire life? Yeah. Now it's, it's, the truth is hack is something Pat Oswald said. Like there are sort of basics of life that almost everyone is kind of helping a comedian will help with. Um, and especially as you're, you have a new kid. So like in your late thirties, most, most comedians are new parents. That process is so, so strange. And then, you know, kids say the darndest thing. So then you can just keep on milking it if you have nothing else. Right. <laughs> um, if you if you decided you ethically decided it's okay some some parents are like kind of weird to like this person didn't consent to being in my act most most comedians ask their their romantic partners but you can't ask a 0 year old you can't ask a 3 year old you can't really ask a 9 year old and have them really conceive of what they're doing um and different comedians have different feelings about that some think well, until they're five, they're not really a person or uh, or until they're 15 or whatever. Like, um, and some think that pays for their food. So <laughs> everyone's good. It's, it's the family business uh, and I'm just the CEO. Yes. So it ranges. <laughs> you did mention um, uh, politics there. And, and th- there seems to have been this interesting phenomenon where there's a, a, a group of comics now who are self-identifying as right-wing comics um, mm. or conservative comics, which implies that all the others are just this homogenous group. Um, like, is that necessarily the case, do you think? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think it's like, historically, artists lean left or lean progressive. And I think there was not necessarily... Again, I can only speak for the country that I live in. Um, a large market for what I would think is like a mainstream comedian who is conservative, as much as there was a market for comedians that appeal to conservative people. So, like, like Jim Gaffigan, for example, was a very famous comedian. He, you know, always did his materials always clean. His materials always sort of like family safe. And so he had a large Christian audience. And because he didn't talk about politics, the politics of that audience, that audience didn't go like, I'm going to see a Christian comedian. Or I'm going to see a Republican comedian. They didn't really think about this. Like, I'm just seeing a comedian. But eventually, over the last few years, he decided he can't do it anymore. He can't have an audience not of people he just can't handle. So then he sort of changed and he wouldn't. He did material that would, that turned them off. Um, and then. But. I think over the last since Trump, actually no, since the since the Daily Show, the value of comedians that are political has been proven, and I think the right wing um, sees the appeal both in terms of like its power as the electoral power of having people 
on your side talk to the audience this way. And I think the audience learned the value. But I think a lot of these now conservative comedy fans might have been young Democrat comedy fans that didn't know the difference. And now they're like, well, I still want that same thing. I still want someone to make fun of the other side. And also you're seeing a lot of people who comedians, a lot of comedians are sort of desperate for an amount of an audience, for attention, for space. And if they see a place to make money, they can make jokes about whatever. So it's like <laughs> now that there's a market, you know, the, the more than anything, the people talk about how there's a sort of conservative grift mm. happening in um, comedy where comedians are like, I'm not really conservative, but I have ideas that I guess could appeal to them. So I'll just only focus on those parts of my comedy where I don't, I don't want, there are very famous comedians that I know are Republican, but you wouldn't even know their act is political at all mm. um, because that's not their objective. Right. I think if you're going to a comedian because of their political point of view, then you're kind of not totally going to a comedian. So, uh, and that's on both sides, but um, there's undeniably now a market for it so much as Fox news has multiple shows that are essentially like comedy shows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, Jesse, but I'm going to. Uh, who's sure. the gre- who's the greatest living comic operating in the U.S. today? Do you think? Yeah, it's Maria Bamford. That's easy. Thank God. Uh, that's <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Greatest. Yeah, I, I during this during, over the last few years, I've I landed on comedy is object is is subjective. All art is subjective. Comedy is really subjective. The only objective truths to me are that the greatest comedians of all time are Richard Pryor and Maria Bamford. And then everything else is a conversation. So Richard Pryor is not alive. Maria Bamford is. She is the greatest comedian alive right. by, de- by, uh, by default. By default, by living. Uh, Jesse, yeah. thanks a million for speaking with us today. Jesse David Fox is the author of Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Worse. A work, I should say. Uh, Jesse, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It was great. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.